Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of EDS at Union Now. This week, we're continuing our series called Margins Speak, conversations on environmental justice led by the Reverend Dr. Joshua Samuel, who is visiting lecturer for theology, global Christianity, and mission at EDS at Union. During these conversations, Dr. Samuel speaks with activist theologians from the global south on the impacts of global warming and climate change, particularly from the viewpoint of those who are on the margins of society. Margin Speaks intends to envision and engender planetary solidarity by identifying and learning from the strategies of resistance and survival among ecologically vulnerable communities around the world. In today's conversation, Dr. Samuel speaks with Vinod J. Wesley, who is currently working on his PhD in Christian Ethics at Lutheran Theological Seminary in Chicago. He is an STM graduate of Union Theological Seminary, and his research area and publications are focused on climate ethics and subaltern communities in India. It's a fascinating conversation, which we hope you will enjoy. And now to Dr. Samuel. What are some of the environmental issues that you see and that you've studied as as uh, as a part of an ethics, uh, Christian social ethics? Uh, with focus on on environmental issues. So what are the issues that you have seen in your global region? Thank you, Joshua, for this wonderful opportunity. Uh, To the first question, uh, especially coming from this global south and uh, coming from a place where agriculture is one of the main occupations for people, uh, for the last 20, 30 years, it has been very clear to me that uh, The agricultural community especially has been suffering a lot and especially uh, because of lack of rain, proper seasonal rains, there is a failure in the crops combined with globalization where the seed industry has been controlled by corporates. Earlier it was not Mm -hmm. the case, the farmers used to do it. So this failure led to several suicides of farmers in the global south as well as in other parts of India. So this was my first thing to be, I mean, this really shook me up. This was a very important crisis for me where the farmers were totally dependent on the ecology for their rain and for their sustenance. There's a total failure and people started to commit uh, suicides. So that was my starting point. The other main major issue is the lack of water resources getting depleted especially uh, the ground level waters have been depleting a lot, which has totally changed the face of agriculture in India, and especially in the global south in India, the south in the India. And the cropping patterns have totally changed and uh, people do not have their, uh, the organic methods of agriculture now. They are forced to change the methods every year. And this is very difficult for the, mm-hmm. especially for the marginal farmers, for the uh, large-scale farmers, it is different. So that is one major thing. And what really mm-hmm. happens is people who are into the uh, farming community, now mm-hmm. they have to leave the farming and join some of the jobs which, for which they are not trained or which they are not educated. I mean, they have mm-hmm. the wisdom on agriculture, but situations where they are no more able to do agriculture, then they have to shift to some of the jobs where they can mm-hmm. only join as menial jobs. So this kind of the basic sustenance like which is shattering their their source of income as well as the culture that is surrounding them that is the their wisdom surrounding them everything seems to be a blank which makes people to commit suicide and these are some of the major issues now actually mm-hmm. uh yeah i mean 
what you say is so true. Uh, one of the, I mean, as somebody who comes from the same region, uh, from South Asia, we see that uh, agriculture has really taken a hit, uh, and farmers are, are kind of, you know, bearing the brunt of uh, the ecological destruction that we see uh, all over the planet. Talking about environmental issues, you, you you did mention this. You talked, uh, you know, you you mentioned globalization. Uh, could you throw some more light on it? I mean, it, it looks like all of these things. It, it probably is not the only cause, but I think it yeah. seems to be a primary player in this whole drama, where neoliberal policies, uh, neo-colonial strategies, basically denying people of their rights and exploiting the, the poor and the vulnerable people. So can you say a little bit more about the role of globalization, the environmental crisis these people are facing? Yeah. Yeah. In India, uh, the place where I come from, globalization really started in the 90s. But I will also mm -hmm. just mention a bit uh, how the face of agriculture and how it affected poor farmers from the 1950s onwards. It was a challenge for the independent India uh, mm. where they had a lot of food crisis. So they thought that uh, a green revolution, like applying mm. methods from uh, American countries and European countries into their agriculture method would yield mm. a lot of uh, products. But what mm. really happened was it was intensive agriculture, which is not suitable for the Indian soil, not suitable mm. for the farmers. Finally, the land and the resources got depleted as it went on. This is exactly where when globalization struck India and mm. they were mostly focusing on like uh, free trade, control over the resources and also they wanted like special economic zones. And most mm. of these economic zones are located in farming lands and very close to farming mm. lands especially. Mm -hmm. And this was a big struggle for whether the farming community especially the most vulnerable farming communities, like people who don't own lands or who have very marginal lands, they mm -hmm. struggle a lot because an industry nearby a farming community will definitely cause pollution, will take the water resources needed for the agriculture and so many stuffs like that. So whatever, mm -hmm. like uh, they, the farming community always maintains their own agricultural land and surrounding mm -hmm. they have their own small forest area which they don't touch at all. This is like mm -hmm. their only abode because Mm -hmm. That they believe brings them rain, uh, they believe it brings them good breeze and maintains the temperature and climate. But mm -hmm. all these globalization industries were focusing on such forest areas. So mm -hmm. they wanted to destroy the forest and build their, uh, like, like tire companies or any copper companies, mm -hmm. all, all very polluting companies. And uh, this mm -hmm. was the biggest struggle. So this totally changed the face of agriculture. Mm -hmm. Later, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, intensive agriculture and market needs were driving the agriculture actually. So mm -hmm. they wanted to produce crops for for selling it for more profit and things like that. This intensified the agricultural methods and a lot of machineries were introduced and this was very hard on the land and also on the people. And finally what mm -hmm. happened was whatever produce they were making, they were not able to have control over it and everything went up actually. All the agricultural mm -hmm. methods really become very costly for the people to do it because mm -hmm. they used to own the seeds, they used to own the method, they used to own the resources. But now mm -hmm. it's all a quality between the globalized companies, the seed companies and the market mm -hmm. economy, as well as the pol local politi politicians, they all joined and together. And this really mm -hmm. has taken the methods away from the people, actually. The methods, mm -hmm. the process and the selling and the 
fruits of it is now totally, um, I would say it has been uh, taken away from the people. So this is a major challenge. Mm, mm. That's brilliant. Uh, I mean, that, that's very enlightening. Because I think when we talk about globalization in South Asia, especially in India, uh, I think the, the focus is usually, uh, or the, the starting point is, is considered to be in the 1990s, the early 90s. Uh, you know, era in Indian history and all that stuff. And, and we got so excited because we could buy Pepsi and Coca-Cola uh, in the shops. And it, but, but I, and of course, we later realized, okay, this is all part of a big cap. But, uh, but I think what you're saying is something very important for all those who are concerned about, you know, eco-justice, ecological justice. Influence of globalization actually goes back to the 1950s. Mm. Uh, it, it's almost like, you know, when you think about this, it, it actually, you know, has very close connections with colonialism. Yeah. Because this is post-colonial India, 1950s India struggling, it just got its freedom in 1947 and struggling and there is a food crisis. And uh, I can see, you know, and you can, you know, too, I believe, as post-colonial scholars, you know, how this is, there is actually a continuation of the effects of colonialism, you know, with the with the colonial power, in this case, the British kind of exploiting and looting India and then, you know, basically leaving India, you know, escaping in the middle of the night uh, just so they could, you know, get away with uh, the whole complex partition issue uh, and then and then leaving this country kind of struggling and uh, and then and then the wise people of those times, I guess, leaders of those times come up with this brilliant policy of, you know, green revolution and and again, that is something that, that I remember, you know, being so appreciative about. I believe, I, I, I remember saying, oh, this is just brilliant. And that's something that we learned in schools as well, I guess. Uh, but then what you say is that what was considered to be a green revolution was actually not a revolution at all. Because it basically destroyed the, the farming methods and uh, the, the, the wisdom of the people, the grassroots people. Mm. Uh, I, that's just... I, that, that's really important. I, I mean, I think that is really something that we need to pay attention to. Uh, you know, this this whole continuity between colonialism and the the, the post measures that post colonial countries are are forced to take to survive, uh, and then the and then once again the West kind of steps in. You know, the Euro Americans, Western uh, powers you know, the imperialistic powers kind of step in as, as the liberators and saying, you know, here we are to help you. And again, kind of continuing their exploitation, basically. Uh, and this is just fascinating to me. I mean, I think uh, if, if there was another, you know, scholar from Africa, probably we would be talking about this, like how many countries in Africa kind of going through the same experience. You know, you, you, you get your independence, but then, uh, you know, you're basically continuing to experience the, the the aftermath of colonialism and exploitation. Um, so, uh, but another thing that really touched me uh, was, you know, what you said uh, about the sacredness of the lands, the sacredness okay. of, you know, the farming lands. And that is something that, I mean, my 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 mind immediately kind of went mm -hmm. to my, my own research area, which is, uh, the goddess traditions in 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 uh, in South Indian villages, and where and then I, I've studied this and I've researched this, that the land is actually considered to be sacred 
but sacred in the sense that it is actually the body of the goddess or the deity itself. Uh, so, and in many places we have seen this that that you know the the the, the head of of a deity is is just visible on the ground, or uh, the head of the date of a deity is placed on the ground, uh, which which stands that which, which which indicates that the body is basically the ground itself, the land itself. So the people actually live on the body of the, the god or the goddess, uh, and it's that sacred. So so when you exploit when you loot when you abuse the land you're basically you, you're you're basically kind of destroying the body of god a divine body and that's something so powerful and and when you said that you know i i could i could remember it uh, but i think it also it, it's kind of similar i mean uh, though i'm kind of moving away from the indian context now uh, what we see in standing rock for instance mm-hmm. The sacred grounds, the sacred lands being desecrated uh, without any without any concern for the, the for for its sacredness, uh, and that's something that's fascinating. But talking about you know these issues that the people in, in South Asia, in particular India, are facing in terms of climate change and environmental degradation, if we can move move on a little bit further uh, and talk about how this also, you know, uh, intersects with other issues, mm-hmm. uh, issues like patriarchy, issues like caste, and maybe race, and and, and all the other, you know, uh, structural injustices that we see. So, uh, how do you, as a scholar of environmental studies and environmental ethics, see these connections and intersections? Okay, uh, this is the right word, actually. Um... Now climate uh, change has been looked at as climate justice as we all talk about it. Once the word justice comes, it definitely talks about intersectionality, like how different mm-hmm. aspects play a role and uh, how it put down people. Uh, it was good that you pointed out the colonial factor uh, into this climate justice. Speaking especially from the Indian Sambalatan, I would, if I'm uh, allowed to use, to use the Dalit perspective, uh, mm-hmm. It is very interesting to see that they trace back uh, the uh, climate justice not only to the British colonialism, but rather to the Brahmanical caste colonialism. Mm-hmm. So what really happens for them is they see, they talk about two types of colonialism that has impacted the climate uh, situations for the Dalit communities. One is the British, which really exacerbated it. But the one mm-hmm. was, for them, they, it says that if you read uh, several stories, where the gods have been destroying the lands and burning the forest, where the uh, indigenous people and the Dalit people are living. There are several stories in the myths and mythologies mm-hmm. in India, especially mm-hmm. from the caste-based Hinduism. I won't say all the Hinduism was portrayed like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. stories really highlight how the forests were destroyed by fire by the upper caste gods and stories like that. Mm-hmm. So Dalits always says that, as you rightly say, our epistemologies doesn't really come for the last 300, 400 years. It has been there for a long time. And the mm-hmm. first challenge was our epistemologies and knowledges were really shattered by the colonial powers, both by the Brahminical as well as mm. the uh, uh, British colonial powers, actually. As mm-hmm. you rightly said, race is a severe issue in the global south also. It has its own face. We call it, I mean, as, as, you, are, as you also are a good scholar in that, like the caste issue is a major role in India. Uh, mm-hmm. in, 
specifically putting it from a dalit perspective uh, almost like 80% of the dalit communities are agricultural laborers actually and very marginally mm-hmm. they own the land actually so they mm-hmm. are not even supposed to own a land and especially if you are a women farmer your name is not in the farmers list and all these play like patriarchy is there the caste issues there so what really happens is when there's a climate crisis the upper caste farmers are free to sell the land and start any other business but the landless mm-hmm. laborers coming from the dalit communities the lower caste communities who are dependent on it they have a huge loss they know only to do agricultural work and things like that and mm-hmm. the other places where i saw really caste in the recent years is even in the uh, newer methods that has been drafted to challenge climate change for example jatropha is a plant which can produce uh, oil and it can be used as fuel actually but this mm. plant is very dangerous it's a biofuel so it is like countering instead of using fossil fuel you can use jatropha mm. plant and create biofuel but this plant is very poisonous and few mm. years back the upper caste farmers did not want to plant this these jatropha plants because they are poisonous but uh, there are news and evidence that the government forced the dalit communities to plant them in their land so even in the remedy measures the climate challenges uh, caste plays a role and uh, patriarchy plays a role women farmers have struggled a lot once their husbands commit suicide and for the women mm. farmers to survive further sometimes the lands are not in their names they are not entitled to own the land they are not listed as farmers so all these like patriarchy uh, colonialism race they all intersect in creating mm-hmm. this injustice so it's a mm-hmm. very strong web where people have to break this web to find justice mm-hmm. yeah that that that's that's really interesting correctly that intersectionalities play a very key role in the uh, ecological uh, justice or injustice as it is and talking about dalits and women especially you are right i mean it's 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 important to to realize that it is often the most vulnerable communities that that bear the brunt uh yeah, of of climate change uh and and exploitation uh though we talk about i think i think sometimes eco justice discourses kind of assume that climate change and ecological justice that i've heard this so many times uh including in classrooms in in america where people just talk about uh climate issues or climate justice that some sort of an equalizer or oh, everybody faces it everybody is in this we are all suffering it's going to be uh you know uh, uh we are all doomed if we don't do anything about this uh this this we are all saying it sometimes like uh it's just so fascinating to me it's like uh say to myself i'm not too sure i mean we are all in this but but the but it's the more the more vulnerable ones who are who are really actually already facing the the, the struggle and i've and i've heard this uh in my previous margin speak conversations with uh, dr theoni havia uh dr kuzipa nalwaba uh from from zambia where where the climate justice discourse has actually sort of created this myth of of supposed equality uh uh you know that people are all suffering we're all going to suffer uh, but i think what you say is something really powerful uh that in in terms of i think a starting point should be the experiences of the most 
in the most marginalized like yeah. dalits and women uh, and i would also include the tribes uh, who are also uh, as you know are facing eviction from their own lands from their own yeah. forests and this is happening in india it's happening in the in in brazil and it's it's happening all over the world and that's something really important uh, and thank you so much for pointing that out but uh, talking about struggles and talking about injustices i think these stories of of oppression these stories of of yeah. of exploitation is also or or are also interwoven with stories of resistance stories of of counter narratives and counter uh, actions and it we see this all over the world yeah so could you say something more especially from a dalit perspective uh, because okay. i know that is your primary focus how these communities have responded to these issues how these communities are pushing back uh, it's it's it sometimes again this is kind of a you know it's easy to assume and you yeah. hear this all the time yeah, uh, yeah. you know just because these communities are vulnerable you know there's sort of uh, is a sort of an infantilizing infantilization you know oh you don't know let's 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 help you out but these communities are already you know resisting these communities are already acting so could you throw some more, some light on that uh that's a beautiful word that you mentioned that stories you know that itself is the uh, is a very counter mm-hmm. uh, counter word because uh that is what the subaltern communities have started uh, which i think because climate mm-hmm. change has been the talks of the economists scientists and it has been like eye level professional research and mm-hmm. presentations but uh, the subaltern communities especially uh, the dalit communities and all the other communities all over the world they started telling stories basically that's really a turning point to the whole issue it's not the perspective from the knowledge and wisdom of the scientists and the economists but it is the real life experiences and stories of the people actually mm-hmm. for me i was really um, uh, surprised to read a story which really helped me to study a lot about the resistance by the dalit communities it happened in 2009 in the copenhagen summit uh, for the climate change the un copenhagen mm-hmm. summit three dalit women from india traveled there and they were sensational in the news in that year they were mm-hmm. actually burning their uh, conference badges outside the conference wow. room and they were throwing it off and all the media went there and they said if you want to really know about climate change uh, you should talk to us and not to the people inside they are all scientists and mm-hmm. economists and they don't allow us to talk this is exactly uh, what is happening mm. in climate debates earlier because mm. you know the stories of subaltern women were not heard but what really happened was these women did not go there to simply attend the meeting they really challenged and brought everybody's focus to listen to their stories and they said mm-hmm. listen to our stories so that is what i see as the first point of resistance and then mm-hmm. the story really wide and uh, back in india in several places uh the one of the best things about uh, the resistance movement by the subalterns is that um, they cannot quit agriculture uh they have mm. to face the challenge uh once uh, they have to do both actually like they have to do both mitigation as well as adaptation that is what they really show mm. at once mm. if they want to challenge the policies the economic policies the globalization the privatization and all these uh, pollution methods and everything on the other side they also did their protest through showing alternative agricultural patterns so this is what is something really great about these people it's not simply protesting a method and not doing their work it is like both actually mm-hmm. 
once they were protesting the policies, uh, global policies, which affect the earth and the earth communities, the other side was telling that, okay, this is a time where we need to survive too. So what are the alternative methods that we can manage? And how can we mm-hmm. do the uh, organic agricultural methods now or some of the integrated approaches of a land and things like that? There are clear mm-hmm. examples from the parts of India like Medak, Andhra Pradesh and several other parts, even Tamil Nadu, where Dalit mm-hmm. women have shown alternative agricultural pattern actually. So this, mm-hmm. this uh, resistance through example to the Indian government and to the everybody in the world that you are not producing crops for uh, profit actually you are producing crops mm-hmm. for survival by which the land is also benefited the especially the community is also benefited i want to like mm-hmm. uh, as we proceed for talk about this tamil nadu women's collective in india a large mm-hmm. group of dalit women who have really showed uh, their protest and resurgence through both mitigation as well as adaptation so these communities are not merely victims basically i would say they are mm-hmm. once they are, they are victims on the other side for me, they are the uh, missionaries today to lead this world towards a mm. uh, uh, path mm. which is going to change us towards a climate justice. So this is how I want to see. Mm-hmm. That's that's really powerful. Uh, I I mean I I am kind of uh, fascinated by uh, your mention of Dalit women as missionaries. I want to come back to that actually. Uh, I would like to come back to that. But uh, before that, uh, so. Uh, um, but I mean, one of the things that you 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 do point out, uh, which I think I want to emphasize further, is this this uh, the 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 agency of Dalit people, the agency of Dalit women, especially. Uh, um, that uh, I think this kind of breaks the myth that Dalits are simply victims. You know, there's this victimization, uh, stereotyping of Dalits. Uh, and other marginalized people uh, that they are somehow you know always at the receiving end and then they don't know what to do they don't know how to do it uh, okay. i think we will talk a little bit more when we talk about the epistemology uh, i think shortly uh, which i want to get to shortly but uh, i just wanted to emphasize the, the, the significance of Dalit agency uh, you know the, the way they kind of define uh, and define their their path they define the ways in which they choose to survive, the ways in which they they uh, can thrive, actually, not just survive, thrive, flourish, uh, even in the midst of all this oppression, both ecological exploitation as well as caste oppression, which we should, and, and of course, for that, women is also gender. Uh, we cannot ignore that as well. The whole, the strong presence of patriarchy. Uh, the Indian society, something that's kind of usually swept under the carpet. Uh, I think that such is uh, so important. Uh, but uh, uh, talking about responses, uh, I'm glad that you you gave a very uh, comprehensive picture of of how uh, you know Dalit resistance happens in terms of uh, uh, ecological you know issues uh I'm, I'm interested before uh I, I want to talk a little bit more about your work uh as a scholar as a theologian as an as an ethicist but before that can you say something about in brief about 
how the church, the Indian church has responded to this issue. Has it responded? Mm -hmm. uh, I hope so. I, <laughs> and I think so. Yeah. I believe so. And how has that happened? Okay. Uh, please say something on that. Yeah. Yeah, this is a very important question as a theologian to see uh, how the church responds to it. Uh, as far as I know, um, I won't be, I'm not able to talk about all the churches, but few examples mm -hmm. which I knew, especially the church mm -hmm. uh, to which I belong to back in India, like the Church of South mm -hmm. India. I mm -hmm. remember back in 2010 to almost uh, 13, 12 and 13, they started and promoted uh, organic farming. They supported communities in their own congregation or mm -hmm. wherever the church was there. Uh, they mm -hmm. helped the Dalit communities to survive on organic farming, actually. So the church mm -hmm. was running a project like that and pastors were involved in uh, seeing how this project really works for the people. This was a very good study, actually. And mm -hmm. uh, it really came out well. Like The churches were encouraged to buy the produce of those organic farming from the uh, produced by the the people who belong to the congregation actually so mm -hmm. this was something really good and it was a very challenging task because one side the market economy is producing cash crops the other side the church wants to support farmers to do organic farming and uh, come out with their uh, food varieties actually that is one mm -hmm. thing which i thought uh, was a good effort actually uh, mm -hmm. the other thing was um, from the CSI Synod, they had a lot of Bible studies, like a kind of a public reading of the Bible with the farmers. They produced Bible studies mm -hmm. for the farmers, and something totally based on the agricultural methods and taking imagery mm -hmm. and parables from there, actually. So that was wow. one thing. And the other thing was definitely another project which they started, something called Green Congregations, actually, through the mm -hmm. church. So this effort was to encourage the church communities to uh open their space uh if possible even to like a market space where the farmers can come and sell their produce produce wow. farming and things like that and to initiate dialogues on the churches to have uh, seminars and to orient themselves towards climate change and how can the congregation be a green congregation like uh, adapting to mm -hmm. green technologies in their construction and things like that mm -hmm. so these mm -hmm. methods i really uh, thought that uh, something the church initiated but the question mm -hmm. is whether it is highly successful or not has been a later study also because like not all the congregation were able to adapt it and do it. Mm -hmm. But I would at least say this was an effort. At least the churches are taking a little bit and uh, uh, mm -hmm. at least contributing to that. Maybe I think the church should uh, collaborate with other social movements more, which is mm -hmm. more easy, actually. If they mm -hmm. try to do it uh, only from their own perspective, or they have their own challenges. Not every congregation is uh, open to it. but. I should. I mean, I would say at least uh, they have taken steps which should be appreciated. But they can do more mm -hmm. if, they, if they are willing to collaborate with larger movements outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great. I mean, some of these things you mentioned, uh, uh, I have to confess I was not aware, <laughs> even though I come from the same uh, region. Uh, and that's just great. And I think it is. Uh, uh, in some sense, a role model for other churches too, uh, in terms of what uh, church as an institution, as a let's say at, at the level of the synod uh, or the diocese can do, but also what local churches can do. Uh, and I'm really glad to hear this. Um, 
I would like to kind of move on to your work, uh, your work as a scholar, as an academic, uh, and also as an activist, uh, uh, given your commitment. Um, so, uh, what do you see as your theological position? Um, I've read uh, two of your uh, articles, uh, which are brilliant, uh, Climate Justice and Dalit Justice, and Dalits as eco-missionaries, Brotherness and Preservers of the Earth. So just the titles themselves are very, uh, it's, it's just fascinating and uh, uh, just draws your attention. Um, I, I thought, uh, because you already mentioned uh, earlier in, in one of our conversations, in, in a conversation about Dalit women as missionaries, Dalits as eco-missionaries. So can you say a little bit more or can you, in brief, you know, gave a summary of this essay, Dalits as eco-missionaries. Okay. Uh, and then we can, you know, talk a little bit more in detail. Certain things that stood out for me first. Can you say something yes. about the yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, thanks for asking that. Like, my research is uh, basically uh, ethics and theology from the grassroots, actually. Uh, mm -hmm. It is an attempt to see how the grassroots communities are a major source and epistemology for my theology and ethics. And this is what I want intend to do, actually. Uh, this, mm -hmm. for me, I would say is not a, like a, the first attempt, nothing like that. I would say this is an attempt that is happening everywhere throughout the world. Our people are trying to develop theology and ethics from the grassroots. I, and I want to contribute to it from an uh, Indian Dalit uh, perspective. So that is where I think uh, where it is interesting for me because for, for a long time, uh, it has been, uh, I should not claim, but it has been like uh, ecology and Dalits have been like a different, uh, I mean, this area has not been explored much. And now for mm -hmm. the past few years, many people, uh, many scholars are coming out into researching into that area so my research mm. also falls into that category so mm. i'm with those the people who are doing the research for the last few years uh, in this area so my focus mm. is basically on that and uh, why i picked dalit women was like uh, it doesn't mean that uh, dalit men are not doing anything but uh, on the <laughs> other side it as we as in a conversation we talked that uh, women dalit women are more vulnerable than dalit Mm -hmm. uh, right, we say that because uh, in Dalit communities, both are involved to work in the land, especially the agricultural land. But only the men are known as farmers, but the women who work equally with them in the land are not recognized that much, actually. On the other mm -hmm. side, also, in my search for uh, stories of resurgence, uh, mm -hmm. I found the Dalit women's collective as a major resource for me. I would like to highlight that here. The Tamil Nadu Dalit mm -hmm. Women's Collective, which was started around like 30 years before, which has around uh, 150,000 uh, women as members into it, majorly mm -hmm. from the Dalit uh, women communities, actually, majorly from the Dalit mm -hmm. communities. They have been doing an astonishing job till now for the last 30 years, actually. And uh, mm -hmm. they have been organizing groups, Dalit women, to share land, like collective agricultural methods, to join two or three women to do agriculture together and promote an agroecology, like bringing in ecological principles into agriculture. So that is something which they are doing. So these women protest on one side as well as they show to others 
how we can do uh, an alternative agricultural methods with uh, integrated methods and organic methods and uh, like having a lot of biodiversity actually such an effort from uh, 150,000 women from the path where I come from, where we both come from, uh, it's something astonishing to this world. And more mm-hmm. importantly, these grassroots ethics is not very triumphalistic in approach. We should say that actually, it is very mm-hmm. spiral in approach. That is, they they go to an extent to win certain things, then they fall down, then they reanalyze, then they move forward. And as women, mm-hmm. they have their own struggles. Actually, they don't know every time from their men, from their village and everything mm-hmm. but they have to break these barriers they have to accommodate people and they have to move forward and it's a wonderful uh, a complex mix of struggle very real very real in its approach and not merely like a one way approach but rather it's like spiraling and spiraling and for 30 years they have been like moving forward and backward and forward and backward but still they want to save their community and they want to save mm-hmm. the earth so for me their life experience plays a major role for me and that's how i want to derive theology and ethics from their community mm-hmm. and it is i i should say this is something uh, which goes along with the uh, womanist theology uh, the method mm-hmm. and womanist mm-hmm. ethics because uh, they are not totally against uh, what do you call uh, a very patriarchal non globalized and things like that but rather they show how family is also important how men has to get involved and change into the process and how uh, the community is important and how victory alone is not important but how survival is important and how equality is important and everything is not like uh, one way like uh, fly i no no it's like coming into the ground realities facing the pain failures and then definitely moving forward to save the earth so i'm really fascinated by this uh, wonderful subaltern movements they have their uh-huh. own everyday life struggles but they don't want to give up they want to show the world that there is another life and there's another world possible but the ethics mm-hmm. has to be different theology has to be different like it has to come from this community which will help us to like if we join with them it's an invitation like that it's not like they are going to join with the other people it's like mm. the other way kind of invitation to see how they live and how they want us to support uh, through this mm-hmm. movement yeah, yeah that's that's great uh it, it, I, i like the way you said you know it's actually invitation to join them to to join with them in solidarity and to learn from them and to um to work with them um that uh, when you when you talk about the women uh, i i see that in your article you use the concept of organic womanism yes uh, which is which is brilliant i mean um we are familiar with the feminism we are familiar with you know feminism brotherism uh but uh yeah, i see you use the vision of the one is kurilos bar kurilos uh uh concept uh which you guys call the organic women can you say a little bit more on that organic sure. women i i want to also add another word to it it's like mm-hmm. uh, two concepts really helps me to do my research one is organic womanism and also mm-hmm. e- eco womanism to say this is mm-hmm. an idea mm-hmm. by melanie aris and mm-hmm. she has really brought out this uh, method for afro american communities but it mm-hmm. really resonates and it 
it can be applied to the indian dalit women also it is the same kind mm-hmm. of an approach which both mm-hmm. sides have the significance of organic womanism in india is that uh, we have a uh, women from the uh, scientific backgrounds talking about uh, climate change we have women like highly educated who are in activism and things like that mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a slight difference uh, not to separate them but organic womanism really focuses on women who are part of the tribal communities and the dalit communities who are really working in the land actually so mm-hmm. just uh, there is this shift to see what is the epistemology and knowledge that comes out of the people who are really working in the land rather than people who just do research about them and talk actually so organic womanism really roots uh, people uh, in the soil actually so it is to uh-huh. see the soil actually and that is one thing which is uh, taking us to the people to the ground level so this organic womanism like kurilos and others are promoted in india is very helpful to do ethics like to it really pushes a person to do an ethnomethodological approach uh, research than to like sit and do a research in a library and things like that to live with the community and learn from them mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. idea is very important for me like eco womanism is a fantastic method put forward by melanie aris uh, this mm-hmm. is a method for the afro american community but she has brought it wonderfully this is uh, this is where i picked up this words like spiral approach and it is a method which honors both resurgence and spiritual values of the community the religious mm-hmm. importance of the community and what they really want to say is uh, they want to bring back the eco memories of the people actually mm-hmm. uh, that is something which is last like once globalization comes the the uh, everything begins with the corporate and the needs of the corporate world actually but uh, mm. these methods want to take them back to the soil and say no you have your eco memory tell the stories of uh, agriculture has been done earlier and of you on the land of you made decisions and mm. that memories are very very important for us now and that is something mm. which is very important for me like bringing back the eco memory is very important mm. and also very important is science because science also is very as i said agroecology goes along with this research actually this is bringing mm. ecological principles back into the community so i really don't want to separate people like uh, scientific thinkers and organic people but at the end i want everybody to interface together and work together to bring better uh, results but uh, for me the starting point uh, the my epistemology is from this both eco womanist and organic womanist from the soil uh, so this is the knowledge from the soil the community with the soil actually that's that's brilliant uh I, I I like the idea of uh, you know eco memory. Uh, actually, want to come back to that. Okay. Uh, but uh, but I also like you know the way you you know when at the end you mentioned about the interface between scientists and uh, and 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 the grassroots women uh, that needs to go hand in hand. Uh, but as 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 you also said you know earlier you know it it just seems to be at least at this point often. Yeah. These are two different streams, you know, the, the, the stream of science, uh, you know, global thinkers, global activists, and then you have the grassroots that uh, are kind of going in, 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 in uh, maybe parallel, but 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 a path that doesn't really meet with the other group. Um, uh, I'm just like I'm kind of 
but I'm having to actually. Uh, I just remember uh, at uh, at a major uh, uh, environmental or equal equal justice conference um, a few years ago, which I won't get into details about. Uh, I, uh, I I I happened to I was invited to uh, uh, to to help coordinate uh, you know. Uh, ecological and environmental activists from South Asia, and uh, I, I, I said, oh, of course, I, I began to do it, and then uh, as I was connecting with them, as I was writing them, writing to them, and telling them about where to stay, and basically the, the logistics, you know, uh, uh, and I realized that all the information that I had about about 10 to 15, I think, uh, all were, were, were basically, you know, these kind of scientists or you know upper caste activists uh people you know who were these, these big weeks you know uh and there was no talents at all that was something uh i i, I could make out and then when i actually pointed that out uh gently as subtly as possible uh, <laughs> uh, one of the questions that was supposed to be was um do you think they will fit into this conflict? And and another thing that they said was, uh, do you think the others will be offended by the presence of these uh, you know, environmental activists? Uh, so that was like that was a shock to me. Uh, it's almost like the, the words that they used were, will they be rude? Will they know how to behave? Uh, will they will they offend? Uh, so it's it's almost like these both these groups are important. Both these wisdoms are important. But it's, and it's interesting like how, uh, once again, uh, you know, some of the global north uh, environmental movement, eco justice movement that is often funded by, you know, capitalistic uh, agencies, kind of keep those two groups divided in some sense. And say, you know what, you two are different. You you just say separate from each other. So anyway, so that was a, <laughs> that was a, you know, kind of a tidbit there. But uh, I do want to get back to uh, you know equal memories. That is so brilliant because I see that you have actually written about Dalit epistemology, and you already did mention it. Uh, and one of the things that we see in the Dalit eco justice movement is the need to connect or reconnect with the memories, memories of the past, wisdom of the past, the past of the wisdom of our ancestors. Can you say a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah. Of that epistemology. Sure. I, I really want to mention uh, to, to Indian scholars here who really helped me to think on these lines, actually. Um, silenced epistemologies is an approach taken by George Zagaria, who was my mentor, to like uh, focusing on mm -hmm. the epistemologies that are silenced in the Indian communities, right from uh, tribal Dalits and other communities also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the other scholar who really influenced me was uh, Peniel Rufus. Uh, mm -hmm. His work on Dalitas was uh, really a uh, yeah. shift in the Dalit uh, theological approach, actually. Just from pathos to Dalitas, where uh, Theos, Mythos, and Telios, uh, he really brought out those aspects in the Dalit theology. This Telios, um, Mythos, um, and also George Agrio's epist silenced epistemologies really uh, focuses that there are knowledge and wisdom which has been silenced, and we need to bring them out, actually. 
And these are these are the memories that is in there because as you rightly pointed out in the conferences people are called who know how to write and present right but to tell stories out of their memories is something a challenge uh, so this uh-huh. is where i uh, really it helped me to focus back into the communities and scholars like kanja ilaya in their uh-huh. post in india and things like that uh, sometimes their stories are like uh, Uh, romanticized and approached but it has been also accepted that people were not allowed to write their histories uh, they didn't mm-hmm. the, they were not given the educational uh, opportunity to learn and write histories but mm-hmm. the way they live tells us those stories that is where the starting point is actually mm-hmm. and in my mm-hmm. own research i mean i have found that uh, the dalit communities back in india they were actually climate audits that's what people used to say mm. they know how to mm. do a climate audit for the year and they used wow. to present that this was the rainfall last year things like that and those mm-hmm. knowledge have been gone and scholars like uh, pallat uh, a catholic priest used to say that people mm-hmm. used to have this nature river that means the local wisdom mm. but mm. once like uh, sanskritization and written knowledge came into flow all these memories have been lost actually and their lifestyle tells that uh, the way they their god and goddesses are very different in their approach and very very teleological the dalit communities and their gods are very teleological they want to always see what will the benefit of the future generation not today so if you use the mm-hmm. land and the water resources properly today the future generation will live a healthy life so they were very mm-hmm. much teleological in their approach actually so these mm-hmm. memories are to be uh, i mean they have to be brought out and they have to be celebrated actually rather than mm-hmm. how intensive you can make the land today and produce that is needed for today's context actually but these memories eco memories tell that these are wonderful epistemologies which focus on sustainability of the land which was very theological as you mentioned that the land was considered as the body of god and they were very mm-hmm. theological in their ethical approach that we have to use what is needed for today and we have to always think about the future generation actually so these are wonderful stories when i visited few villages they used to say about how they used to do agriculture 30 years back 40 years back and how limited they wanted to do how wonderfully they took care of the land and how purified the places were and how they respected the land and stories like that but things have changed a lot in the last 50 years so these mm-hmm. memories are very very important resources mm. that's great that's great uh, yeah it, it, it's so important for us to uh, learn from the, the wisdom of our ancestors you know these 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 this wisdom that is uh, enshrined in a way you know in the uh, in the memory of uh, of our past uh, so uh, i think we are kind of running out of time here uh, but i just finally want to give you a chance to to as uh, as a scholar from the global south who is now doing his phd uh, you know at a premier theological institution in the united states uh, and as you engage with uh, the local communities here and also see what is going on in in the in america uh, and in you know all across the globe well, what do you have to say uh, in brief uh, to the american church and the society uh, what wealth of wisdom or what 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 do you have to say 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, definitely it's a wonderful opportunity to study with uh, international students and to bring perspectives from global south to talk with the people in the global north. I see, um, first of all, I want to uh, challenge, uh, I mean, I, I should not say challenge, I want to say that uh, to the global north that uh, listen to many stories away from your own uh, circle, actually. Mm -hmm. That is something which I always want to say. I mean, this is not something wrong, but uh, sometimes I feel uh, they are well aware of what is happening around them, actually. Uh, but I would like to say they uh, to step forward and to listen to stories and which is happening all over the world, especially in the global south, actually, what are happening there. Mm -hmm. And these stories are not only stories of pain and pathos. Yes, definitely. Uh, on the other side, all these stories of resurgence is also emerging from there. Mm -hmm. This is something which I uh, want the people to first to, to do, like listen to what is happening all over the place, actually. And in the Global South, my recent observation has been like two types of approaches, which has to be appreciated, mm -hmm. but uh, I want slightly to go a little further than that. One thing is like, uh, if I uh, want to mention that, uh, I would definitely say the people who have uh, this colonial background behind them uh, and racism behind them, they are very aware that uh, that their generation caused colonialism and racism. So one side, people who want to work as climate activists coming from that background, uh, mm -hmm. they feel that we uh, want to confess our sins, we have done mistakes, we have colonized land, our fathers and grandfathers have colonized the lands and destroyed the earth and things like that. So they are totally in kind of a, in a confessional mode, actually. The mm -hmm. other type of community who are victims of racism and migration and things like that, climate refugees, mm -hmm. they, yeah, their side seems to be more of anger, actually. Like, we, we, our communities are destroyed, our families have been destroyed, and uh, historically we were not allowed to do certain things. Definitely, these two uh, totally opposite methods are there, like one side and uh, anger with anger and uh, need for change. The other side is totally mm -hmm. uh, confessional mode, actually. Mm -hmm. I would say these methods should be a starting point, but it also should move towards uh, mm -hmm. working together and reconciliation. So that will mm -hmm. definitely help us to mm -hmm. uh, change the world, actually. So it looks like two parties uh, uh, looking at each other, but rather uh, wherever we can find the bridge to join together mm. without forgetting mm -hmm. these colonial histories, basically. So that is something mm -hmm. I have to be careful of. When I say let's mm. get together, I should not be throwing throwing away the stories of colonialism and racism, but mm -hmm. how do we find a path where reconciliation and working mm -hmm. together will save this world mm -hmm. and interfacing with other theological perspectives and mm -hmm. denominational perspectives to even to say that uh, uh, how can we all join together and do so? I would like the, to say that the Global North should move forward with the finding ways where we can all bridge together and work together mm -hmm. instead of like pointing out uh, the problems actually. We have been doing that a lot and and uh, pro and like funding projects and things like that. More than that, if we all can work there, because already people are working in the global south with their own mm -hmm. resources, they are already doing mm -hmm. something. So it is now for us to listen to their stories and to collaborate with them and coordinate with them and things like that. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's great. Those are words of wisdom that uh, the global north should should pay attention to. Mm -hmm.
Vinod Wesley, thank you so much. Thank you so much for uh, for this very uh, inspiring and uh, challenging conversation. Uh, this is uh, this is really an eye opener for me, for sure, and I'm sure will be for many other people. Thank you so much, and all the very best with your studies uh, and as you move forward as uh, as a scholar and as a pastor. And I and I wish and I pray that you will continue to touch and influence many more people. Thank you so much.